Welcome to the My Risk Advisor podcast. This podcast is for the Australian financial planning ecosystem and we focus heavily on life risk insurance. So whether you've been around for many, many years or you're just starting out, I think you'll get heaps of value out of this podcast. I'm your host, Phil Thompson, and I am a life risk insurance specialist, so I geek out on insurance all day, every day. Now, today's episode, we've actually got Adam Crabb from Zurich One Path, and I just wanted to have a chat to him about the legislation changes that came in over the last few years, and it's particularly in October and November, which there were six pieces of legislation. Now, they impact advisors in different ways, but I wanted to get a good sense of how it impacted the insurers from their point of view, because Adam's title at Zurich and One Path is Risk Strategy Specialist. So I'll start off by asking, what the heck does that mean? And we also can't do this podcast without the help of industry support from Zurich and One Path. So I just want to say a quick thank you. Zurich and One Path are your partners in life and are proud supporters of the My Risk Advisor podcast. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining me, Adam. So the first question, what is a risk strategy specialist? Is it like a title like consultant where no one actually knows what you're doing and therefore you you don't have accountability? What, what is that title? Help us yeah, understand that. Absolutely. So I think the best way to explain the title is it's a bit of a, um, a bringing together of both being an insurance specialist, but also an advice specialist. So we really try and bring much of the complexities of the insurance world, the technical elements um, through to uh, a practical advice lens. So something a little yeah. bit different. Yeah, and having, a, I guess, a lot of experience in both both camps, the light side and the dark side is um, makes that really helpful. Absolutely. And in fact, uh, I'm still am, even though I've, I haven't spoken with clients for gosh, a decade, uh, I still hold my CFP and life risk specialist designation. So still go through that CPD process as, uh, as yeah, advisors cool. currently do. And uh, well, first question, which one's the light side? Which one's the dark side? Product <laughs> provider or advisor? Um, oh, you can answer it later. Um, all right. So, as we chatted about, we're just going to talk on legislation and, and I think it's really interesting to, to listen about how legislation changes impacts uh, the insurers as well um, because as advisors, all this legislative changes has a big impact on us and we, we kind of get very insulated in our world. Mm. Um, but, it's, you know, obviously, there's plenty of partners in, in the advice um, world um, so understanding those legislative changes. So I'm just going to rattle off some acronyms because in advice we love ac- acronyms. But like in the previous legislative changes was the PYS, mm. the FASIA Code of Ethics, IDII Phase One, which is the agreed value I call Phase One. Yeah. The FDS opt-in legislation changes. There were six pieces of legislation in October and November, which is always fun. IDII Phase Two, DTRC. DDO, BRR, IDR, YFYS. Now, no one uses those acronyms for most of them, but um, <laughs> the, uh, the IDII phase two is really interesting. The duty to take reasonable care, which is I'm, I'm calling DTRC. Design and distribution obligation, the breach mm. reporting reforms, internal disputes. So, I guess that's what I'd really love to touch on today is like all of those things that came in October, November, like how does that impact uh, your world. So, I guess let's just kick it off with the uh, YFYS, so your future, your super bill. Mm. How does that impact insurers or does that impact insurers much? I think it, the, the short answer is it may, uh, but it will largely depend, I think, on the sort of business that the insurer more broadly 
um, works in. So by that I mean, um, given that YFYS is targeted mainly to that sort of group superannuation type market, if there's an insurer that has quite a sizable uh, group business, um, and particularly one where the member base might be perhaps more susceptible to the uh, the provisions under the YFYS, like the stapling, then it may impact some insurers a bit more. Uh, for Zurich and One Path, it probably won't impact as much. Uh, we don't have uh, you know, as big, say, group business as many other players in the industry. So um, really from a YFYS perspective, probably not going to impact us as a business too much. Yeah. So just touching on what that is, it's just stapling super funds to each individual. Um, and so I guess, the, do you think that'll positively impact insurers or negatively because there's not like five different accounts with small insurance policies anymore? I think it's going to be mixed, Phil. I think you, you know, part of the benefit of the reforms really was to make sure that there wasn't, uh, you know, unnecessary forms of, of insurance and perhaps reduce that duplication. Uh, now, if that leads to, you know, premature lapses, then, you know, the YFYS will probably assist in that regard. But equally, if you've got members out there who are um, not, they're a little bit disconnected from the, their risk, then yeah. there's the potential that, um, you know, if a a group fund, for example, is quite reliant on new members and acquiring new insurance, then that, that might perhaps be a negative impact. So I think yeah, yeah. the best response is perhaps a mixed approach. And I guess uh, the the protecting your super that came in ages ago dealt with a lot of those low low balance, you know, non-active funds with regards to insurance, which we've obviously seen a, a negative impact. In that yeah, agreed. Um, to PYS, you're right, was about that inactivity. Then there was the putting members' interest first, so PMIF, just another acronym to throw in, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which was all about that sort of low balance and the age uh, piece. But I think the challenge there from an advice perspective, Phil, is that while the legislation might call out, you know, a period of, say, you know, 16 months of inactivity, for example, super trustees can actually take a different approach. Um, so yeah. they might be able to drop that. And we've started to see that through many group contracts. Some providers have mandated a 13-month period of inactivity before the contract or the insurance uh, comes to an end. Uh, others have done a 12-month approach. So yeah, it right. doesn't it doesn't breach... Um, the requirements. It's just a, a different approach. Uh, but I think the message there is if advisors are just looking for that 16-month period of inactivity, they really need to understand the contract because there might be a slight difference, which could certainly impact the advice that they're providing. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Yeah, because well, I know in our business, as a risk specialist, we talk to our clients if we're maintaining that group is is make sure that you're doing something every 16 months. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's that's a really good point. So I guess the other things that, well, the main things that came in October and November that probably have a lot less um, you know, impact on the insurers is the breach reporting. Do you guys, are you involved with any of that breach reporting or is that more licensees and, and advisors? It will certainly target, I think, more the licensees um, with a, a life insurer because we've been breach reporting through APRA since I think 2008, you know, the changes for the breach reporting on the ASIC side really aren't going to impact us much at all. Um, there is a bit of a carve out there which states that if the reporting has been done through APRA, then it's kind of seen to be done through ASIC as well. So, yeah, it's more likely to impact the, the uh, yeah, advice yeah. providers in that regard. And same with the internal disputes resolution. I mean, you guys have been dealing with disputes for forever and a day as insurers, no doubt. That's right. Um, so I guess that, yeah, that doesn't impact you guys as much. So I guess we'll touch on the, the juicier ones and something that definitely hasn't impacted advisors as much as we probably thought um, was the design and distribution obligations. So help us understand how you guys, because those things had a really big impact on your business. Um, so help us understand like just 
uh, like what well, I guess explain what it is and then you know how that did Im- impact your your business yeah so the design distribution obligation uh, really flowed from can you believe back in 2014 uh, the financial system inquiry which was led by David Murray uh, and they were really looking at a bit of a, a health check of the industry back after or shortly after the the, the GFC and part of the recommendations was to uh, come up with more customer centric product design um, and that's obviously led then to this formalized design distribution obligation or, or DDO. Uh, what it's meant for us as an insurer is um, quite a bit really uh, new uh, documentation. So these new, um, another three-letter acronym to throw at you, which is yeah. that TMD, the target market determination. So in fact, on the Zurich side, we had I think around 34 TMD. So we had about half of those on the insurance side and half on the investment side. So it's a document which um, can be picked up, read by, um, you know, a consumer basically yeah. to sort of ascertain, you know, is this particular product, the death cover contract, the income protection, is it something which is going to suit uh, me as an individual? Um, and uh, you, you're right. I think there's a large kind of carve out for advisors, but there are certain uh, things which uh, advisors do need to uh, to do as part of that that DDO offering. One is related to those target market determinations and making sure that you know if you feel found that you are providing a large number uh, of recommendations to a certain group of clients, and that group of clients didn't form part or was outside of that target market, yeah. then it's actually incumbent on you to let us know um, because we may um, need to rework the TMD um, or worst case, we might actually need to amend the product because there may be a failing on our part um, with that uh, broader alignment with that product to that end consumer. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, just more, just on that, do you think that impacts retail insurance all that often? Because if the client doesn't suit the product, you guys don't offer the product. Mm. Is that fair to assume? That's a good question. Uh, it does in a way because the products which we have at a retail perspective, um, certainly the direct products because they form part of the change as well. Yeah. Uh, but we do have uh, advisors that will recommend, say, is there a protection, active, one path, one care, uh, and it may not necessarily be in a full personal advice model. So it could be a, a general advice for yeah. example. Um, so those sorts of businesses are perhaps more impacted by the changes around the DDO and the use of the TMDs. So, mm. um, yeah, in short, um, it, it does actually impact the retail side of the product uh, at largely because of the- When it's introduced by a, ge- a general advice model. Correct. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I know you said uh, you guys don't work heaps in the group space, but but how does the, the TMD impact the group space? I'd imagine that would- that may have a bigger impact given that you're covering, you know, well, in the group space, you're covering a million people. How do you, how does the insurer know if it doesn't fit or does fit? Yeah. So each, each group product, uh, and you'll find this now, if you went on to a, uh, an industry super fund website, for example, you'll see not only the PDS, but you'll see a TMD for that particular contract. So yeah. it is starting to encroach a little bit more. And I've no doubt over the sort of the next, you know, Few months uh, that it will just kind of become part of the part of the norm is having these sorts of documents which uh, an advisor can either utilise as part of their their due diligence um, or in the general advice space will need to obviously use it more proactively. But yeah. I think the good news is though, you know, for personal advisors, you can certainly look at that TMD. But if you feel that there's a um, a, a need to recommend a product um, and it's to someone who doesn't fit the TMD, you're absolutely allowed to do that. Um, you know, yeah. because you. 
because of the, the best interest provisions. And I guess, I guess, well, you know, um, if I'm talking like non-advice, someone goes to Australian super, mm. gets off-the-shelf super and default insurance, um, and they're in a like super high-risk occupation. Is that is that obligation on Australian super? Is the obligation on the group insurer um, of Australian super to make sure that that individual member will be eligible to get get paid a claim? Like, where, where does that lie? Yeah, there has been some changes, actually, and it was part of um, those recent reforms you alluded to, the Protect Your Super, the Putting Members Interest First Bill. So part of those changes actually introduced uh, some changes with respect to the occupations, uh, yeah. and there was actually a bit of a, um, an exemption um, around some of those high-risk occupations because obviously the concern by uh, not just legislators but part of the, the, uh, the parliamentary side of things was that there is a potential risk that, like many of those high-risk workers that you mentioned, could be left without without insurance cover. So yeah. uh, I think, you know, if, if I was an advisor looking at providing assistance to uh, people in those occupations, and it could be, you know, paramedics, it could be um, any form of, um, you know, occupation that does involve that sort of high level of risk, is really engaging with that uh, super fund directly just to ascertain what is the the classification for this particular um, individual, um, you know, making sure they've got the cover in place and hasn't lapsed. But uh, then what does that occupation mean? And not just the occupation now, but the occupation at claim time, because with yeah. some funds there can be, as you may know, there's that that issue that um, if there's a, an occupation which is not deemed you know palatable by that uh, group super fund or group insurer, that might be problematic at claim stage, not necessarily uh, upfront. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's I mean really interesting in the in terms of that how that obligation impacts those those group insurers where they they have very limited information as to who their members are really. So I guess then the next one and, and I kind of call this like a, a little bit of a sleeper um, change that that I'm sure impacts you guys, um, but I know within the advice community it's not talked about all that much. In fact, my own business I had to change my own SOA before before it was within any templates because because of this change. But the duty to take reasonable care, mm. um, for me, I kind of, yeah, as I said, I don't feel like it's talked about very much, but I feel like it has a really big impact um, for insurers and advisors. Um, so, first of all, help us understand what, what are the changes, what have we gone from, what is it now, mm. um, and then how, does, how has that impacted you guys? Yeah, so this, this is one of, of the recommendations that um, came through the uh, Royal Commission. And uh, to be honest with you, it's actually, I think, a betterment to the insured. Um, so it does make our role as insurers a little bit more challenging. Uh, part of the, 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 uh, the historical issues with duty of disclosure has been around um, this almost gap between what an insured uh, knows compared to what an insurer needs to know for that individual. Um, and that was kind of something which um, which uh, Commissioner Hain picked up on. And what this new duty, um, and I love your new acronym for this, by the way, really needs to get legs, <laughs> is, uh, um, is that... I've got to keep reading it to remember what it is. DTRC. <laughs> DTRC. DTRC. Just rolls off the tongue. Yeah. Um, but this duty to take reasonable care, what, what it really does is put the onus back on us as an insurer to make sure that we ask the right question, um, and um, it makes it ultimately easy for the consumer to be able to more adequately answer 
um, those questions, which form part of that broader underwriting piece. So um, it, it really is designed to take the onus off the insured to a degree uh, and more on us as a provider to ask those right questions for that particular individual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I guess we can talk more broadly. How do you see that impacting two areas in terms of in the application stage, where do you see the impact? And then also in the claim stage, where, where are you seeing that impact? Or I know we'll, I mean, you probably wouldn't have ever, ever dealt with a claim yet that's that's under that that new duty because it only just came in. Mm. But yeah, they're, they're the two major areas that I see as an advisor. Um, yeah, so maybe just talk about like, let's just talk about the application stage. How, how is that impacting the application stage. So what, what we're likely to see is a change or a potential change to some of the questions that may have been asked during underwriting. Um, so there might be, there hasn't been much change uh, from our perspective, uh, but you might find that there are different questions that have been asked or questions perhaps that have been asked a little bit differently just to make sure that the, um, the right information is received from that particular individual. Um, at claim stage, uh, probably not a lot is going to change. Um, there has always been mechanisms for insurers to, you know, deal with situations like fraud, for example. I mean, that part of the Insurance Contracts Act um, really has remained largely unchanged. So the avoidance um, provisions, the ability to um, amend the contract uh, within a certain period, that three-year period, that's remained largely unchanged. Uh, but yeah. sort of this this ultimate goal really is ask is kind of better clarifying the questions that the insurer asks of of the insured upfront. Yeah, but do do you think there will be less of those? I guess really the claims that don't get paid, which is very few statistically. Correct. The ones that are, that people get the most grumpy about is the disclosure dis- discussion, like that where a client didn't disclose certain something and and they're getting declined a claim. Mm. And so I guess the, I my my read is they will come down a lot. Because the obligation now sits on the insurer to make sure that that things have been disclosed more than it does on the insured. Yeah, I would agree with you, Phil. I think that's that's one of the ultimate aims is to reduce that potential ambiguity claim. Um, I think one of the, the the levels of certainty though that I see when I look through that that contracts act in particular is you know in situations like you say if there's a situation where something was I don't know forgotten or you know wasn't disclosed and this was part of the, the issue with the old regime, mm. you know if if it was immaterial to a claim, so let's just say you forgot to disclose something about a broken ankle maybe that you'd suffered, um, but the claim you're making was to do with, um, you know, breast cancer, for example, you know, the, the two are completely unrelated. Yeah. So based on the provisions under the, 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 the Contracts Act, um, now that wouldn't come into play, that disclosure piece, because it is completely unrelated to that um, to that particular yeah. claim. Yeah, and... and- well, I guess what what I'm seeing as an advisor is insurers are asking a lot more questions at at application stage. Not 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 in terms of the personal statement being added to the at the moment, and and maybe you know that's a big that's a big technical piece when it, when it comes to tele underwriting and stuff. Adding mm-hmm. questions is is difficult, but but is more like once the personal statement's done, you know, if it if it's not completed within thirty days. Some insurers are coming back to us as the advisor and say, "Hey, can you get the client to just to redisclose it? Everything's still all good." Which in the past wasn't because the the obligation was on uh, the clients essentially, but us as advisors to make sure that if anything happened in that period of application, we update the insurer. But now it's, I, I guess, it does slow down our process from an advisor's point of view, whereby insurers are, you guys are on the hook, so you're going to just 
you know, basically pass that on to the advisor and say, hey, just get the client to re, you know, just basically state that, yeah, everything's all good still. Yeah. And there perhaps is a role for us to play in that space. I know uh, certainly from our personal experience at Zurich One Path, our distribution team do like to work quite closely with advisors. So if there is a situation where perhaps there is information that might be required or, like you say, there's a period of time that's that's lapsed, um, that our team will try and work quite closely with um, with advisors to really um, help in that efficiency piece. Mm. Yeah, I guess the last bit of legislation, which is a bit of a minefield, we're not going to deal with it heaps, but the IDII. Mm. Um, so maybe I guess let's assume not everyone knows what it is, and and but it's really the income protection changes. Um, no, no advisor I've ever met addresses income protection as IDII, um, but but we all know what that means now. Um, so just give us a rough overview of of what it is. Um, but then also I'd like love to hear your view on like w- now that we've kind of rolled out, we're what, a month and a half out from from the rollout. Um, what do you think are some like really good lessons learned from the rollout given that each insurer basically had your blinkers on, you didn't know what anyone else was doing and now you guys can see what, every, what your competitors are doing. So, well, I guess well, from a insurer's point of view, what are the lessons from, from that rollout that you're seeing post, post 1 October? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, the if we look at the sort of the formation, and, and I agree with you, like it's income protection, right, or salary continuance, um, mm. IDII. But I think it was part of the government's attempt to just kind of clarify that it is individually held disability income insurance. So you know the changes to replacement ratios, um, they haven't formed part of the of the group space. So it is you know direct contracts, it's retail advised policies, those which sit outside. Um, which have been, you know, formed part of the change. Uh, you sort of mentioned, I think, in your early intro, the phase one, which was the agreed value, um, which yeah. has already come to fruition. But yeah, this this uh, more recent kind of second tranche of changes, um, as you say, which only happened a few weeks ago um, in, in October, was um, was a big one. It, uh, uh, I, I think, part of the, the the messaging from the regulator has been quite concise with respect to you know, the income replacement ratio, no more than seventy percent throughout the, the contract term. But other areas have been really left to each individual insurer. And that's where I think it's, we're finding some real, perhaps challenges for advisors is trying to, you know, articulate and work out, well, through these myriads of changes, whether it's like an approach that we've taken, which is a shift from an own to any occupation after two years. Um, Others have decided to, you know, decrease the income replacement ratio at, you know, two years, for example. Um, Others have done combinations and, to be honest, there's been a real mix of other approaches. Some will require, you know, a TPD level of, uh, of severity uh, at a certain point. Um, otherwise, the claim stops or the payment can drop sharply and mature age decreases like at age 60 and beyond. There's like a tapering down. So it is, I think for advisors, it would be quite, um, quite difficult. And part of the reason why as a business, we really decided to be um, quite proactive and uh, we've provided uh, and delivered quite a number of sessions. Uh, and I know you'll be speaking actually soon with uh, Andrew Kasperson, um, yep. who's also been part of that. Uh, but we really have tried to be on the forefront to try and talk through what the changes have meant from, from a regulator perspective and then how we've applied our own philosophy, how we reached out to key stakeholders like yourself, like licensees, research houses, but also the community at large, trying to work out what were some of the kind of pain points, those things which... Uh, perhaps the community were concerned about. And what our findings led to was that financial stresses uh, were actually the leading 
personal stressor in an Australian household. So um, because of that, we've sort of taken the view that we really wanted to keep that replacement ratio at uh, at 70% because yeah. um, part of the insight showed that or uh, well, medical um, information suggested that, you know, impacting that financial uh, payment uh, could actually be a detriment to someone's uh, wellness and return to work journey. Mm. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting space. As a... Um as a risk specialist, that's all we do in, in my business. Um, it's kind of as painful as it is reading all these PDSs and trying to learn what's going on and basically like wading through um, what's going on. It's actually been really good for my business knowing that um, people need more support now than ever before, um, understanding an income protection policy. When they all look and smell and feel the same, yeah. it's it's not that difficult. You can kind of almost pick on price. Um, but when there, when there is distinct differences, uh, it's actually really good to have that conversation of what, what is important to you? Is price important? Um, because you're actually going to give up something now if you're getting a cheaper policy. Um, or is that income replacement ratio most important? Okay, well then great. That's going to cost you a bit more. And, and these are the, these are the offerings. Mm. Um, yeah, so the I mean, the RDII. I think everyone's still kind of like taking a deep breath after it, um, because if you know, getting those pre-October policies in, um, because no one actually knew what was going on. Um, but yeah, that's it's a interesting space. Um, the the new IP policies, oh, and I guess I mean, without you know playing your cards too much, but but. Uh, when are we going to see all the new policies that everyone's going to everyone's going to change? How long is that going to take for everyone to update their policies? Well, that's the, that's sort of the the um, the talk of the town at the moment. It's it's what are providers likely to do in the short term? Um, mm. Look, personally, we we're quite happy with that offering. We we really took the opportunity to do a bit, a bit of a refresh, uh, and um, you know. Part of the feedback we've certainly got is is quite positive. Um, I can't speak can't speak for others, of course. Um, and of course, the other change which is going to be coming, uh, well, certainly at this stage, uh, October next year, which is that mm. sort of third and final phase. So, look, more more changes is on its way. Uh, I think one of the things I can say with confidence is, you know, despite this whole IDII change um, that's occurred and continuing to occur. There's such a need for continued uh, advice and, uh, you know, professionals working closely with clients, uh, not just in the strategy, the recommendation, but even at claim stage. I think yeah. Yeah, this this whole notion that APRA have said, you know, these products do need to still be fit for purpose and continue to be suitable over the long term. So working with people through partial benefit journeys and getting them back to work, uh, I think, um, you know, as if you are a risk advisor uh, and you're listening, I think it's, it, you really are working in quite an incredible space, one which I have no doubt is likely to increase in importance over the coming weeks, uh, months and even years. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, and you touched on it uh, briefly that, that these IDII um, or the new IP policies are just in the individual income protection. Given that group income protection loses a lot of money as well, what what's your gut feel on on APRA's um, take on will they change the group policies? Yeah, it's a hard one. I, I, it, it would make sense for there to be an alignment between the two, but yeah, time will tell. Um, I, I, I don't have any gut instinct at the moment as to whether or not it's likely to happen, certainly at the time of, of this recording. Um, but but who knows? Uh, yeah. I think there's likely to be advisors out there thinking, well, you know, if I can get a 75% replacement ratio or higher through a group 
product, you know, under best interest, should I be looking in that direction? Uh, I think, you know, the short answer would be not always. You know, there are still a number of significant benefits as to why you'd hold cover outside the group arrangement. You know, the fact that uh, I know not just us as insurers, but uh, a number of others uh, have aligned their products to allow for that uplift in that first six months. So if there's yeah. a, I mean, severity booster is what we've called ours. Others are quite similar, but unable to pay up to 90% in that sort of intermediate period uh, is quite important. Um, we still offer like a pay and close. So if we know it's going to be clear cut, you know, Phil, you've had an accident, you're going to be off work for two or three months. Uh, medical advice suggests it's, you know, absolutely cut and dry, then we will pay you know, that, that benefit um, and, yeah. and paid in advance. So these are the sorts of things you don't generally see um, as happening in that, uh, in that group space in particular. Yeah, no, it's going to be interesting because, yeah, group policies, they lose money. APRA says they're losing money, but but they still yet to yet to make those changes. And as an advisor, exactly that conversation I had with my team is, what do we do? Do we just recommend group for the next twelve months until until it you know there is a level playing field? And because yeah, under best interest, what do you, what is that best interest? And, mm. You know, we went around in circles, had many conversations, waste a whole bunch of time. Um, but but you know those conversations are super important to have. Um, so I guess to find to to finish this up, um, thank you so much for for coming on and, and having a chat Thanks, but um i guess yeah where where do you see the the industry in the next five ten years the specifically insurance industry yeah i think it's we're likely to see more change more evolution occur but uh you know when any changes occurred there's always this reference that uh you know life insurance in particular is such a critical area for uh not just the economy but for the the, the community at large you know we know that uh, you know, ASIC data shows that something like 40% of people in the community uh, want to seek advice in a relatively short term, like 12 to 18 months' time, um, much of which people now, I think, particularly off the back of this pandemic, uh, are more cognizant about their health, their well-being, their financial impacts if something happens to their ability to earn an income. So I have no doubt that there's likely to be perhaps not a surge, but certainly an increase in people seeking advice, getting clarity. I think with changes that we've seen, income protection, uh, more changes that are happening next year, it's going to get people thinking about, well, what does this mean for me, you know, my, my family moving forward? Um, so I, I definitely see after kind of the dust has settled that we're likely to start to kind of uh, enjoy uh, an increase in, um, in activity in the life insurance space. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we've we've seen a lot of activity with these changes creates uncertainty, therefore creates a need for advice. Definitely. All right, last two questions quickly. When do you do your emails? Do you do them in the in the morning, in the middle of the day, at the end of the day? Yeah, uh, it's interesting. On the email front, I'm a little bit naughty, so I do like to top and tail my day with yeah. emails. I find I, I can't really sign off for the day unless. You know, there's nothing kind of urgent sitting in there. Um, but I will sort of check it sporadically. Um, you know, I work closely with our distribution team and, you know, if they're perhaps working with an advisor and something pops up quite um, urgently, I want to make sure that um, it um, it's addressed where possible, um, which I know is not ideal because it can kind of disrupt the, the, the flow of things. But, yeah, definitely, I'll, I'll definitely top and tail the day. Yeah, yeah. No, interesting. Um, and last question, what's one interesting hobby that you have? I, uh, I'm a motorcycle enthusiast, so I, uh, enjoy motorcycling in my, in my spare time. Um, riding yourself or watching? Uh, riding myself. Yeah. yeah. So. What bike do you have? I have a, uh, 
It's a, called a naked bike, a Triumph uh, Bonneville Street Twin 900. Got yeah. it. I am not a bike person at all, so I'm assuming that's a very good bike. Um, <laughs> kind so, of one of those retro-style, awesome. more classic-type bikes, yeah. Yeah, cool. All right, awesome. Well, thanks heaps for um, coming on and really appreciate it. If people want to reach out and connect with you, how do they do that? Uh, LinkedIn's probably the best best place to go. So just, uh, yeah, look uh, look for Adam Crabb uh, there and I'm um, happy, to, happy to hook up in that forum. But it's been great to chat to you, Phil. Awesome. Thanks heaps, Adam. Thanks for joining us today. If you've enjoyed this episode and you think someone else will get value out of it, I'd love it if you could forward it on to them. And as always, we can continue the conversation in the My Risk Advisor Facebook group. All you need to do, open up Facebook and search My Risk Advisor and I'll see you in there.